I'm your host, Vic Choksi, and this is Victory Lab. The premise behind Victory Lap is simple. It's to have on luminaries from the sports, entertainment, and media worlds to talk about their journey, and most notably, one victory that helped them reach their goal. On today's episode, I speak with one of the biggest sports attorneys in the game, Darren Heidner. Darren, first and foremost, how are you and your family doing today during these crazy times, man? Thanks for asking. We're doing well. You know, let's talk about you and your journey. You've done some really, really cool things in the sports world. To start, let's take it back a little bit in time. When did you know you wanted to work in the sports ecosystem? Well, I really wanted to work in some form or fashion sports as far back as I can truly remember. At first, I thought I would marry sports with uh, being a doctor and then realized that I didn't really enjoy looking at blood. The side of it whatsoever made me queasy. In high school, I was very involved in debate at Nova High in, in Davie, Florida. And at that point in time, thought I would go to school to University of Florida and focus on political science, eventually going to law school. I'd say it was really in the summer of 2005, between my sophomore and junior years, when I had the unique opportunity to intern at a sports agency in Atlanta, Georgia, called Career Sports Entertainment, abbreviated CSE, that I had that practical experience in the sports world uh, working at a sports agency as an intern, and then a few months later, starting a sports agent blog. That's really what got my feet wet and I think solidified my initial belief that doing something in the business of sports was going to be my passion, my pursuit, and hopefully, ultimately, my profession. So before you became one of the biggest sports attorneys in the world, you were an agent at first, right? So you had that internship and then you went the agency route? That's right. So it didn't take that much longer from my internship to actually give it a go in creating my own sports agency. So as I mentioned, I interned in summer 2005 between my sophomore and junior years. And it was only two years later in April of 2007 uh, that I decided to just start up an agency from scratch. I was naive, a bit ignorant, but I figured, you know, give it a try. Worst case, I failed, but I was in my senior year about to graduate and had that summer to really work on building up the sports agency and then going into my first year of law school, staying in Gainesville at the University of Florida. And so uh, I gave it a shot and I worked on the agency for about four years. So the three years of law school and then even for roughly a year thereafter, when I had moved back down to South Florida, where I'm from originally and where I live now. And the law firm that I worked for initially was kind enough to allow me to continue to grow that sports agency on the side. Not many law firms would let you do something like that. So I was able to continue to do that and ultimately believed uh, that I should pivot away from sports agency and just practice law full time. Everyone watches Jeremy Maguire when they're a kid, right? Loves the movie. They're like, I want to become an agent. How, was your version of being an agent like the movie or was it everything you imagined or was it a little, you know, just kind of put in your own words if you can? No, it wasn't like the movie. I think watching the movie certainly added entertainment and some fascination surrounding the industry. But my experience was not at the level of Jerry Maguire, nor did I have the difficulties and drama surrounding uh, you know, losing clients and, and trying to keep my one client. And I wasn't in the workplace environment where I was an employee for an agency and leaving to do my own thing. I literally started my own agency from scratch. But for my internship experience, I had never been in that sort of corporate atmosphere 
especially with regard to the sports agency industry. So, no, Jeremy Maguire's story, uh, that fictional story is a bit different than mine. But I did certainly suffer quite a few setbacks. There were many emotional related stories uh, during my four years of trying to grow a sports agency. And I had some successes. I learned a lot in the process, but definitely a lot of failures as well. And uh, I realized just how difficult it is to try to create an agency from scratch, especially without first working at an established agency, building the relationships and potentially leaving with some clientele. Fast forward a little bit. So, you know, then you decided to become an attorney. You were in law school. You finished law school. How did the journey pick up from there? Yeah, I actually went to law school and went through my three years with the intention of never practicing law. So as I mentioned, I was working on my sports agency throughout those three years. In fact, while many of my colleagues were clerking at various law firms during the summer, I never actually did that. So when I graduated from law school, I certainly did as much to get by while I was there but I didn't have that practical experience that many of my colleagues had and certainly not the connections to various law firms because again, my intention was not to practice law. So I moved from Gainesville to Fort Lauderdale with the strict intention of spending my time building up the sports agency. But I was basically asked to lunch by some partners at a law firm. And this Fort Lauderdale law firm had asked for my insight probably about a year prior to that, because they were interested in developing a sports law practice within their law firm. And I had met with them and, and I gave them whatever insight that I had, I, I guess it was a 3L at that time. Near the tail end of that lunch, they asked what I was doing the next day. I explained working on my agency. So why don't you come in? Why don't you check out our offices, see what we're all about? And I did. And they actually offered me to start working there saying, as I mentioned before, we're not like other law firms. We'll let you continue to try to build your own business on the side. Just make sure that you accomplish the work that we need you to, because otherwise there's no value there for us. I said, okay, let's give it a shot. It was a real eye-opener to me because, again, I, I never had that, that practical experience in law school. I didn't know really what discovery requests were all about, interrogatories, requests for production, depositions. But it was a smaller firm, and they really threw me into the fire right away, and I appreciate that. So I quickly learned what it took to be a good lawyer. And uh, I worked there for exactly a year before going to another firm where I worked for about two and a half years before ultimately creating my own law firm, Hydra Legal, in June 2014. I know you've done some really, really cool IPs because I, I follow you on social. What was the day where you thought to yourself, like, hey, I, I really made it, you know, like, hey, this is something that's something viable, right, that I can do my, on my own? I never really have those sort of internal conversations where I say, hey, I made it. Um, I think that there's still so much more that I can and should do in the industry, and I'd love to continue to help people. So I don't know that I'll ever have that moment where I say I've made it, but certainly uh, there has been validation for what I'm doing. And I would not have started my own firm, I think, without that comfort that existing clients would stay with me and also be the tool to, to have new clientele. And when I was urged by so many clients to start my own firm, I think that was really, I guess, if I had to answer your question as to when I thought I'd really made it, it was at that point in time. And starting the firm from scratch in June 2014 and having all those clients, those existing clients stay with me, but even some clients of my partner 
had decided to leave the firm and go with me, even though I had not even originated them, but I had worked so much with them and they felt comfortable with me. That was, again, validation of the concept and the fact that I'd be able to succeed. And as you mentioned, you know, a big component of my practice has become intellectual property and actually the marriage of intellectual property with sports. Actually, my very first client when I started up my own firm on the IP side was Greg Hardy. Uh, you may remember he was an amazing, amazing NFL player, had his off the field issues, unfortunately, and that really sidetracked his career there. Now, believe it or not, is an MMA for anyone who actually follows him probably knows that but we did a lot of ip related filing for him early on another client who really jump-started my career as a, a solo practitioner uh, was draymond green who asked us to, to file a variety of trademark applications uh, i'll never forget early on after starting up my my firm darren Novell, who was at espn at the time was on a plane uh, with bill rafter one of the most prominent uh, basketball commentators and they got to talking about how Bill Rafter is always pronouncing onions and with a kiss. And uh, when they discussed whether or not these things are protectable, Darren uh, referred Bill to me. And that was a very challenging process to obtain registrations for those marks. And uh, certainly being able to accomplish that helped Darren then refer other clients to me. And again, it's all about continuing to build that brand through success stories and without necessarily uh, bragging about what it is. There's a, there's a unique balance between bragging and just sort of exposing the, the positive things that we're doing. And that's certainly a challenge. But again, I don't know that I made it, but I, I, I love the work that I do. And I love that I'm helping out so many people in the space. Well, let's talk about some of your other paths. You've done a ton of really cool stuff. You, you've written a book, right? Like you write for sports business websites. You used to have your own. You also teach class. Like how did some of those opportunities come along? Is that something where, you know, it, it comes along, someone refers you, or is that something you go out and seek? I've never really been proactive in finding opportunities. I don't recruit clients for Heightener Legal. I initially didn't really try to find the opportunities from a writing perspective. So as I mentioned, I started Sports Agent Blog back in 2005. And I did so as a New Year's resolution. I actually started December 31st, 2005, with the intention to learn more about the sports agent industry, to push myself to learn more cover the latest issues in the realm of sports agency and build connections by way of interviewing people and so on and so forth. And it turned out to be uh, one of the best things, if not the best thing I, I ever did. Then I think it was seven years later in 2012, I was working at the second law firm in Miami. I was about to go to lunch with one of my colleagues and I get this email uh, from the editorial staff at Forbes saying, we're huge followers of uh, what you're doing at Sports Agent Blog. We'd love you to come and join our our list of contributors. And I thought it was a prank at first. Again, I didn't reach out. And I, you know, at that point in time, and, you know, Forbes, huge name, like, wow, this was unbelievable. So uh, negotiated a deal with them and ended up writing there for six years. And it was an amazing experience for me. And in fact, then one of my editors at Forbes left to go to Inc. Magazine and they didn't have a sports column at the time. And so she had asked if I'd be willing to write there as well. And I didn't have any sort of exclusivity with Forbes. So another opportunity that sort of came about through connections, but not my outreach. And I forgot what year, it may have been 2013 or 14. Again, the American Bar Association reached out to their publishing unit and said, we'd love to tap you to write a sports law treatise. And that's how, how to play the game, what every sports attorney needs to know uh, came about. 
And after a few years, I think it was three years later, they said, yep, for a second edition. So just updated some of the information, created new chapters as well on different topics. And, you know, it snowballed from there. I, I did leave Forbes and Inc. a couple of years ago. Uh, but, but since then, I've started writing for Above the Law, which is a great niche publication for law, which also didn't really have a sports column. And more recently, doing a monthly column for Sports Pro. And as you mentioned, now also teaching. I've taught three years at Indiana University of Bloomington, a sports agency management class. More recently, and I'm currently, I'm teaching at uh, my alma mater, University of Florida Levin College of Law, a sports law class. And I'll be there in August. Hopefully, coronavirus allows me to be there. So I follow you on social. You do, again, we've talked about it. You do a ton of different stuff. I know you work crazy hours. You, you're putting in a lot of hours to the game, right? What's your just quick, typical day like, or is every day different? Lately, it seems like the days are, are more the same. I can tell you what my typical day has looked like over the past few months. It's, it's, it's very scheduled. I, I, I run on a tight schedule. I typically wake up uh, somewhere between 5.30 and 6.30 in the morning, rarely after 6.30. Uh, the very first thing that I do is grab a cup of coffee, check emails, go through everything. I love nothing more than a clean inbox, a zero inbox. I don't get stressed out easily. The only thing that stresses me out is when I keep seeing email after email after email building and I have, I'm like, oh my God. Because a huge component of my practice is I'm big on communication and also expediency. My clients are used to me responding like right away, whereas a lot of lawyers spend take days, if not weeks to respond. So I attack those emails and then I'm off to the gym. I spend typically at least an hour and a half cardio, weightlifting every morning. And I'm typically back home uh, about 9.15, 9.30. I love to watch the opening bell on CNBC and kind of track that. And then I'm, I'm off to the races. I've typically got quite a few scheduled calls, a lot of tasks that are either built up uh, that need to be uh, attacked or on a, on a daily basis, you know, urgent matters that come about that, uh, that need to be handled. And, you know, before I know it, it's you know, five o'clock, it's six o'clock and I'm oftentimes even working into the night. So, you know, but I, I work from home, which is great. I worked from home prior to coronavirus. And so we haven't really experienced any struggles from that aspect of the business. In fact, we haven't really experienced any struggles whatsoever. Thank God business has been good. But yeah, that, that's, that's my day and uh, spend a lot of time with the family, which I love. Any advice you can give to someone that's trying to make it in the industry or break into it? I've always said, look at Nike's slogan, just do it. But what is it, right? And, and oftentimes we all get caught up in what it should be. And we're theorizing what we should be doing. And we don't realize how much time we're wasting. And oftentimes even we have a, a very ingenious idea and we sit on it and someone else takes it because ideas are not protected. So I always say, just do something. I have not succeeded in every little thing that I've done. And I've learned from those failures. And sometimes a failure is better than a success because you learn very valuable lessons. So I always say, just do something. And don't let anyone sidetrack you. If you have a passion, if you have a dream, if you have a desire, I can't tell you a single entrepreneur who succeeded without people telling him or her that they couldn't accomplish that task, that their dream, their goal was something that they would fail at. Obviously, take constructive criticism to heart. Uh, it's a good thing. Don't ignore it. But also don't be dissuaded from following your passions and following your goals. And finally, I wouldn't you know, be dissuaded from entering into an already crowded industry. Now, understand the barriers to entry. 
understand that the mere fact that there's oversaturation may inhibit your likelihood of success. But in every industry, including mine, let's say the legal practice, there are too many lawyers out there. There are, but there will always be a need for best in kind. So if you want to be a sports agent, if you want to represent NFL players, I'll tell you all right, odds are against your success. You're going to have to spend a lot of money, sleepless nights. It's going to be a pain in the ass. You're most likely not going to succeed. There's just so many agents out there. But if you're the best at what you do, there will always be a spot for you. Is there one victory, small or large, looking just back at your journey? You've done a lot of really cool things that can, you can say that helped you get to where you are today? Well, I, I'll, I'll talk about something in the recent past, which is what I've done with respect to name image likeness. I was asked to be a part of this process in the state of Florida to help draft legislation, promote it. And uh, look, we were able to push through legislation that has not been seen in any other state with an effective date of July 1, 2021. I saw this morning Marco Rubio is now pushing the NCAA to do something by June 30, 2021. It's not a coincidence that it's a day prior to the effective date of our bill that's been passed and was signed into law by Governor DeSantis uh, just last Friday. So that's been a, an amazing journey thus far. The intention is pure. I tr I've truly believed for many years that these are rights that college athletes deserve. And it's, it's been amazing to be part of this process where we've actually now reached the finish line in Florida uh, where this will become reality in a year from now. And hopefully other states jump on board. Hopefully the federal government will as well, but with the right type of policy. I, I hope that legislation like what Senator Rubio proposed today is not ultimately what passes because it gives too much control and exemptions from an antitrust perspective to the NCAA. And I, I just want what's good for the athletes. And I'm concerned that federal legislation, at least the one that's proposed today, is not necessarily in the best interest of the athletes. One last question, because I know you got to run coronavirus related. So you're seeing schools like OSU and a lot of these big programs, they're saying like, hey, it might be on the families, right? Like in case a, a kid gets sick, et cetera, et cetera. I personally don't really understand that. Like I'm kind of against that. I feel like this is a billion dollar industry. These kids are laying it out online. They're taking all the risks. Like the school should be able to help them out. Right. But that's just kind of my perception of some things. If you can give a quick recap as to what some of this paperwork's going to look like. Well, the paperwork varies. We've seen Ohio state come out with what's called a pledge. It doesn't go to great lengths with regard to acknowledgement of the risks and, and waiving any rights that the players may have with respect to the university if the player contracts coronavirus. There's separate issues, obviously, if there is any litigation about causation, whether or not there's actual, you can prove negligence and, and damages in that type of situation. But what we're seeing is you know, there, that type of pledge, and even Gene Smith, the athletic director, saying, there is no actual intention to use it as a waiver, but then a school like SMU and others that have much more uh, fruitful uh, specific waivers of any sort of uh, right to litigate and with specific claims of waiving any and all types of, that, of legal activity against the school if in fact the player contracts uh, coronavirus and specifically and outright expressly assuming the risk involved and so on and so forth looks much more like a legally binding document. I think what's interesting is, as you mentioned, you know, whether you're Ohio State or SMU, you're asking the players to sign this document. If it's not supposed to be legally enforceable, I don't know why you really need a signature, at least from an Ohio State standpoint. And if a player is under the age of majority, uh, that being under 18 years old, there's a requirement for a parental or guardian signature as well. So, you know, 
there are many issues surrounding the enforceability of these types of waivers or pledges anyhow. Uh, some things that come to mind is whether these players even have bargaining capacity. What's their other option here? Yes. Is this against public policy to make them sign something like this? Uh, so if challenged, I'm not sure that these types of waivers will withstand any sort of test, but they certainly will serve as a deterrent. Whenever you sign any sort of documentation, you may not necessarily be giving up your rights, but, but you're making it more difficult uh, to pursue those rights if you believe you have them. So we'll see how it all turns out and whether we see other schools have these types of waivers or pledges or even on the conference level, but they're just starting to trickle out now. Well, thank you so much for your time, Darren. I really appreciate it. It was fun talking to you and learning about your journey, and I hope we can stay in touch, man. Absolutely. My thanks again to Darren Heitner for joining me today. Be sure to check him out on Twitter at Darren Heitner. He's definitely a fun follow in the world of sports business if you're into it. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to give us a like or a follow and definitely share the word with your friends. Last but not least, you can follow my work at DocSquad33 on Twitter or VicChoxy33 on Instagram. This is your host, Vic Choxy, signing off. I'll see you guys next time on Victory Lab.